Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Thursday, September 24, 2009. We're excited to have you with us. Welcome to Conversations.net and FutureofEducation.com. This is a live discussion about the impact of the Internet on culture and society, and our special guest today is Dana Boyd. So I'm going to use the little clapping hand. You can do so as well to welcome Dana. Dana, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Okay, also with us is our co-host slash intern, Teresa Beffa. Teresa, thanks for being here. In fact, Teresa, I think we're going to get a fair number of questions today. Were you going to say hi? Hi. Hey. Hi, Dana. <laughs> hey, if you wouldn't hi. mind uh, keeping track of questions that fly by in the chat, that would be helpful And um, in case I miss anything. So I want to give a quick overview. Uh, you are in Illuminate. Uh, Illuminate is a teaching and learning platform, and they sponsor this interview series. Uh, Illuminate has also created a social network for educators called Learn Central, and I'm the uh, MySpace Tom of Learn Central. So please do come there. It's a free network that has Illuminate built into the social networking tools. A lot of fun. Would love to see you there. Now coming up on Conversations.net and FutureofEducation.com, we have some really fun shows. Next week, John C.D. Brown, and then one with Howard Rheingold and Joyce Valenza on libraries. Uh, the week after that, or I guess the next day, Alan Weiss on the business of changing lives. And then the week after that, Dennis Lipke. I won't read them all to you, but there's some fun ones coming up. Tim Westergren from Pandora, I'm looking forward to. Henry Jenkins. Well, I'm looking forward to them all. Uh, but go to futureofeducation.com and conversations.net to see what we've got on the schedule. If this is your first time in Illuminate, this is a participative environment, so we hope you will participate. You've used the clapping hand. Next to the clapping hand is a smiling face. There's also a confused face and a thumbs down. I've got to promise Dana we won't do much of the thumbs down today. But if uh, something said you disagree with, <laughs> use that and let us know, and we'll, it'll spark discussion. To the left of those small emoticons is a hand with a green arrow up. That's how you raise your hand. And if you would like to actually take the mic and ask Dana a question, <coughs> excuse me, um, that's how you would do so. So you'd raise your hand, and then I'll give you mic privileges. Before that, please do go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard, and that will make sure that your microphone is working. You can also leave questions in the chat, and Teresa and I will try and grab those and make sure that they do get addressed. Um, there, uh, in the chat, you can send messages to each other. There's the, private, the capability to send a private message. But be aware that Dana, Teresa, and I, as moderators, actually see all those private messages. So they're not entirely private. Next to the whiteboard on the, on the left, you are now going to see a set of icons that will allow you to actually draw on the whiteboard, which we'll do for this map. So you'll see a wand with a red star at the end just to the left of the map, and click on that, and then click on the map and let us know where you're listening from. Oh good, Australia made it. So I have to apologize. A tweet went out about the time of this show, and it said 9 a.m. Eastern. And uh, I'm not even sure that was the, the right time. But I sent a corrective tweet, and then I realized you know, that could actually be uh, Australian Eastern Time. So if that was you, I apologize. Oh, look, we've got Europe, too. Dana, you're popular. You've drawn Europe in. <laughs> well, wherever you're listening from, we're sure glad to have you here. And I'm going to turn that off, and we'll move forward. 
So Dana, would you give uh, just a couple of minute overview of uh, what you're doing now and, and, and what over the course of the last three or four years has brought you to this place? <laughs> sure, just a small question, yeah. huh? <laughs> um, so I am now a researcher, a social media researcher at Microsoft Research and a fellow at the Harvard Berkman Center for Internet and Society. And I recently, as in December, finished my PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, which is exciting. Um, uh, up until that point, I had been, spent uh, four years uh, on a project with the MacArthur Foundation, and I was um, funded by the MacArthur Foundation. And I was looking at how young people uh, use different kinds of social media. This is a follow-on to a whole variety of projects I've been doing around social media. So I did a deep dive on American teen practices, um, and what that meant was an ethnographic study um, of teens across the United States and their use of um, social media, and because of the timing, the emphasis ended up being social network sites. So the exciting thing is that uh, my dissertation sort of mapped out um, you know, some of the different practices, and um, those who are interested in more of a public-facing version of it should be excited to know that I am really close to signing a contract uh, to publish uh, the findings in a more general conversation uh, for the public at large. Um, since I arrived at Microsoft, I have been continuing different things on um, how young people are engaged with social media. Uh, I've been staring um, pretty obsessively at uh, as teenagers have started to pick up uh, Twitter around the, around the, uh, the globe which has been really fascinating because it gets picked up in different places than people might expect. Um, the downside of this is that I've spent way too much time paying attention to um, Demi Lovato and the Jonas Brothers um, and other such things. Um, so this is sort of the, the fun part of it. Um, the less fun part uh, is that I'm also uh, looking, I shouldn't say less fun, it's just a little heavier. Uh, I'm also looking at some of the long-term safety uh, policy uh, uh, needs. Um, in other words, if, uh, for those who didn't get a chance to see it, the Internet Safety Technical Task Force sponsored by the Berkman Center um, did an investigation of what um, issues around online safety existed uh, in order to provide technical um, and, uh, and uh, website suggest or suggestions for different corporations and suggestions for technical solutions. Um, the thing that we really quickly learned in looking at all this is that technology is only one very, very small piece of the larger pie. And if we want to actually address uh, online safety, we have to get to educators and social workers and um, all sorts of youth, youth workers and advocates and uh, you know, youth ministers, et cetera, et cetera. And so right now I'm trying to figure out what that might look like. Um, and so I'm you know, diving right back into the safety stuff, uh, along with following sort of new team practices, along with a book. <laughs> so just a few small projects. <laughs> hey, Dan, I put your website up in the uh, web tour. I'm going to close it down, but I did also put the link in the chat, and I'll do it again. So there's a lot of material there. If people are interested in Dan, they can go look there. Again, one thing that occurs to me is that before we had a lot of the data about safety, we had some preconceptions as to what was safe and what was not, some of which turned out not to actually be accurate. Are there things now that, that you think we might be misconceiving? 
Oh, I mean, I think we're still misconceiving many of the things we've been misconceiving since the beginning. Um, part of it is that there's a lot of mythology about these different issues. So the four areas that I pay a lot of attention to um, are sort of as categories, of course, there's a lot of blend. But the first is um, sexual solicitation. The second is um, harassment, which includes bullying and other such uh, forms of harassment. Um, the third is uh, consumption of problematic content. Um, and this is usually framed um, uh, around consumption of illegal content, um, including um, access to pornography of underage, from underage minors. Um, and then the fourth, which is often really undiscussed, is the production of problematic content by minors. So in each of these, we have certain myths of what's go, what goes on, or certain highly publicized um, elements of this. So sexual solicitation, of course, is the big one, right? This is about the, you know, there, there are these predators that are reaching out and you know, abducting our children. And we should be really, really frightened of them. And interestingly, there's um, a really long history of believing that predatory adults uh, will attack our children in all environments that allow them to engage in public life. Um, this long predates the internet, um, that public spaces in general are always seen as being um, a site of fear. And, you know, of course, there are handfuls of cases that are truly, truly horrifying at every level, the, the stranger, the young child, et cetera, and those can't be ignored. But when you actually do a deep dive and looking at the, at the risks and what actually goes on, you get a really different picture. And so, you know, one of the things people don't realize is that most six, when you hear, like, for example, you hear a number of one in seven or one in five kids have been sexually solicited online. Well, half of those sexual solicitations are from other minors, right, which is not ideal. This is where we start to get into a sexual harassment conversation. Well, of the remaining half, um, the vast majority of them um, are from under 25. Right, so this is often the case where it's uh, an under 25 um, sexually soliciting a 16-year-old who's pretending to be an 18-year-old. And when we look at um, the data on the actual sex crimes, we start to see that this is actually where we, we uh, start to see sex crimes. And what's really scary and fascinating about this is that it's um, primarily a, a model that fits a mindset of statutory rape. Now, is it problematic? Of course. But the, the teenagers who engage in these practices, not only are they at risk um, offline, but they um, believe that they can consent to sex. They meet up with adults, often lying about their age. They meet up repeatedly. They know it's for sex, and they think that they're in love. So we can look at this and be like, hmm, this is still not ideal. But the points of intervention to actually address it are fundamentally different than the points of intervention to address um, this, the, the um, stereotypical or mythological um, sexual predator. The other thing is, is that as we obsess over the sexual predator, we've turned all adults into being bad people. And this is actually a really unfortunate byproduct of this fear. There is something extremely important about having um, adults um, interacting with minors in a really productive way. It's part of how we understand how the world works, how we get to interact with, uh, you know, how to grow up and make sense of things. It's also really critical to have trusted adults around us that are not just the people who hold direct power over us. So that's one of the real side effects and costs of, um, uh, of the sexual solicitation panic and all of the predator panics that go with it. Um, combined with that is, you know, I'm often asked the question of, you know, well, why aren't kids politically engaged? And it's like, you have to be a part of public life because you, before you can be part of political life. And so to the degree that we write kids out of public spaces because we think that they can't possibly interact with them until they're 18, we do a disservice to young people. When it comes to harassment, 
Um, harassment is primarily minor to minor, right? Lori Drew is not um, a really good example, and actually the case, uh, how it was reported is completely inaccurate. Um, there's an assumption that Lori Drew created the profile, that she was the one sending the final messages. That wasn't true at all. So this is very much publicized in the, in the print as, as being something that's adults to minors. And then here's one of the weird things. We, it's easier to demonize these, uh, these strange adults that we don't know than it is to deal with the fact that young people can be part of this process itself. Um, and unfortunately, young people are uh, both victims of bullying and, um, and agents of it. And one of the challenges is that they're often both. Um, and so addressing that requires a fundamentally different uh, a paradigm shift. Um, as for problematic content, the most interesting thing in that space is that nothing has changed really over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, there's been some increase in, um, in more extreme content, but actually what we find with young people is that they're not accidentally running into pornography and other uh, such content. They are seeking it out. And of course that requires a different intervention than um, accidentally running into it. Um, especially when we're talking about the, the sort of more intense thing. The thing that's often underlooked with that is um, uh, violent content, which is also a part of this. And I'm not just talking about video games, but I'm talking about um, videos coming back from war zones. Um, and how do you actually, uh, you know, work with young people to think about that? You know, the, the videos from 9-11 um, themselves. And then the fourth category is uh, youth-produced, uh, youth-generated problematic content. and. Um, this is this is sort of for me a really heartbreaking area because this is actually where we see uh, a dynamic that unfolds as kids um, feel a lack of control in their lives. Um, we know that eating disorders and self harm are very much connected to this, and guess what? It plays out online as well. So we're seeing um, an increase of production of um, uh, eating disorder images and you know pro anapromia, um, as well as uh, self harm cutting um, type images uh, and videos. We're also seeing gangs um, videotape their uh, fights as proof and putting them up online as proof, and we're seeing the really devastating harm that can be done with that. We're also um, seeing an increase of uh, what's sometimes talked about as child-produced child pornography, but that's actually a problematic term. We also hear about it as a sexting. Um, and it's what happens when young people are taking uh, naked photographs of themselves. Uh, often for their significant others, for their friends, um, and causing all sorts of problems because uh, what happens is that the child pornography laws are set up to really go after people who victimize young people. And unfortunately, all these teenagers are getting wrapped up into it. Across all of this, there's one consistent message. And that's that the internet has um, not necessarily generated this, which is usually the assumption, but instead has made all sorts of problematic and dangerous and at-risk behavior and at-risk youth more visible now than ever before. And so, you know, in previous environments, it was the teacher who could tell that a kid was probably being abused at home. It was, you know, maybe the youth minister who saw that there, you know, that there's emotional issues. You know, tracking down anorexia was a matter of maybe the doctor once a year during the physical seeing this. Well, what's happening now is that all of these practices are being made visible. They're now suddenly in our face. And the automatic adult response to this is to blame the technology and to hope that if you made the technology get rid of it, that the problems themselves would disappear. And yet this isn't what's going to happen. And so one of the biggest challenges for me as, a, as both a researcher and as an activist is to figure out how to get um, 
caring adults across the spectrum who are involved with youth to take this, this challenge, this challenge of visibility, and use this as a, as a really important opportunity to make really meaningful interventions and to really seek out and help youth in all sorts of novel ways, whether they're the youth in our classrooms, um, the, youth that, the youth that are in our communities, or the youth more broadly. Because more than anything, we get to see that right now. And so I think that's, that's been the biggest challenge here, is that there's this assumption that there's, this is so much more now than ever before. But the data doesn't really suggest that. It's just very clear that it's more visible now than ever before. So I'm intrigued by that, Dana, because I, I love the points that you've made. And um, we had a session last night called Parenting 2.0 with uh, the author, Jane Nelson. And a lot of these same themes came up about the need for adults to, to engage and interact. And, and the ways in which these technologies create a more sort of egalitarian relationship potential and, and the value of that. But it seems almost like at the very moment at which caring adults are needed, they feel, the adults feel less qualified because of the technology. So how do you respond to that? Um, you know, this is, this is also, it's, it's changing the power dynamics. So what happens is that young people um, who really engage with this technology know it a lot better than, than um, adults. And parents, parents and teachers and all of these other folks who've had this role where they're supposed to be teaching young people um, are uncomfortable when, when young people know something much more than they do, right? Um, you know, and, and result in this back in my day conversation that was really dangerous. Um, the first thing I invite teachers and, and parents and, and all sorts of people who work with youth to do is to take this opportunity and learn from youth. Right? Learn from youth in your community. Learn, you know, learn from your kids. Learn from, from the students you teach. Learn from the, the people who go to the same uh, religious uh, organizations as you do. Wherever there are youth, take them seriously and learn from them. They can help you guide through the technology. And that's actually where we, when we start to think about these interventions, you know, another big assumption is that um, the parenting, you know, that parents can actually do all of the interventions with young people. Well, unfortunately, what we find is that the at-risk kids online are the same as the at-risk kids offline. And more often than not, parents are disengaged, um, either explicitly or implicitly. So when I say that, I mean like you have you have the you know you know interviewing all of these kids is, is fascinating, but you get these parents who are um, on one end you know mess addicts or alcoholics or otherwise you know really not there. On the absolute other end of things, you have the workaholic parents who haven't been present for their kids because of their work responsibilities. There's all these different ways in which parents are not engaged, and unfortunately, parents can't suddenly engage in high school. But who can engage? are, you know, trusted parents of trusted friends. And so some of the most interesting elements is like when, as a parent, it's not just your responsibility or to look out for your own kid, but to look out for your community. And the reason why I say it's your responsibility is that um, if you want your kid to be happy and healthy and grow up in, in, in a successful way, the environment around them needs to be healthy and happy. And that means you actually have to pay attention to their peers, to a kid's peers. Um, and so as parents, it's, you know, it's not just looking out for your own kids and actually stalking your own kids is one of the worst things you can do. But there's a lot to be said for checking out what's going on and coming back and being like, hey, you know, your friend Sam, she doesn't look to be doing so good. You know, everything okay? Anything I can do? And, you know, in the same way, we see this, this uh, play out in, in, in um, physical environments where 
a lot of the young people I talk to, they'll talk about a, a friend's mom or a friend's father as the person that they turn to when they need advice. Right? So this is the same dynamic and an opportunity for adults to look out more broadly in their community. The same ends up going on as teachers. Um, the key is to not always be in regulatory mode, right? This is not about law enforcement. This is not about coming in and saying, you should behave this way. But using it as an opportunity to open up dialogue and wait to, you know, there's a lot to be said about waiting to be invited and like, and making yourself available. These basic things that we think about even in physical environments, right? Like this is, this is why, you know, having office hours of some form or another ends up making sense because it's about making yourself available. Now, not all kids will reach out to you and there's points where young people who are, are, are in, need a lot more help than that. That's actually why social workers and um, therapists are actually another critical player in this um, because the kinds of engagements that they can do when, there is, when, when we've got severe abuse on the table, when we've got all sorts of other really devastating issues, that's a totally different kind of intervention. But the key for parents um, and the key for, for teachers as well is, is really to start being a part of the community. And being part of the community means being online. And the key to being online is to learn from the people who know it the best. And often that's the people you're trying to build relationships with. So this is really fun, Dana. Uh, and one of the things that came out last night was I think some of us, me included, were sort of expecting Jane to address very specific sort of challenges parents have now with Web 2.0 technologies. And if I heard her correctly, and, and Peggy, I think you were in that meeting, maybe others were, you know, she really said this is the same old story. You know, it's about caring adults taking time to actually be in authentic relationships with children. And, uh, you know, it was just sort of um, brilliantly summed up in that way. Is there a degree to which these technologies have baked in them a um, an ability to communicate, uh, sort of a flattening of relationships? that actually brings with it the potential to do more of this? You know, the irony in all of this is that um, it, there's a conflict at play between uh, wanting kids to be private and, and then wanting to have visibility to it. And so in some ways the best place for doing all of this was MySpace because MySpace was, especially at its origin point, very, very, very public. And what this meant was that you didn't necessarily have to be friends with um, the kids in the neighborhood to actually um, to check, check in on them and, and basically to deal with the eyes on the street dynamic. Um, it's now actually, it's increasingly harder. Um, it's much harder with Facebook. It's even much more, hard, more difficult with um, SMS, um, you know, with, or with anything mobile. Um, and so there's this challenge because Part of it is, is that we're going to keep seeing things go back to public and then keep seeing people pushed away from public. And so like, when I look at teenagers using Twitter, there's something really interesting because we're, it's, it's actually now another generation. It's, it's teenagers who really, you know, MySpace was already on the scene by the time they hit high school. So they're not, they're not even, you know, that, it was never cool. It was a thing their older siblings did. Um, but they're now engaging uh, with Twitter very similar to how they engaged with, with uh, MySpace. They're talking to celebrities. They're, they're you know, joking around more broadly. Um, and they're willing to be much more public. So it ends up being a very, very good tool to get a sense of what's going on um, in a way that Facebook is much more tricky. And so the key with using things that are more locked down is, um, is to actually start a conversation to invite young people to contact me on Facebook. Like one of the, you know, the funny things is that it, this is an adult and, and teen difference, right? 
as, as an adult, if you meet somebody, you're like, oh, please email me. Here's my email address, right? Well, this, this is actually already going to set up a strange dynamic with young people. And so one of the ways in which you can invite that possibility is say, hey, I'm on Facebook. If you ever want to talk to me, here's my, here's my Facebook contact information. Right? Here's, my, here's my short ID. Um, or you know, just drop me a line on Facebook. And to be really visible on Facebook and accessible on Facebook. Um, and to really put the onus on young people to reach out and talk to you in that direction. Um, and to make, make available other means of communication that make sense. Um, the typical response is that because adults are comfortable in email, they, they want young people to, to use email to talk to them. Right? And this is, this is the joke when I, when I interview teens, they're always like, yeah, email is what, how I talk to like, my parents and old people. <laughs> and you're like, okay, right. Um, old people, by the way, includes teachers, includes anybody um, over the age of uh, 21. And so um, the, the thing about it is, is also to make, make yourself available to the things that you know that they love, right? So you don't have to go around friending them. But if you make a Facebook profile, if you make, you know, a presence on, on Twitter, if you make all this, and, some, and a teenager reaches out to you, use that as an opportunity to connect back and make yourself available. Tell them that you're willing to talk by this way, and you'll start conversations in the spaces in which they're comfortable. And that's actually, that, that does more of evening the playing ground um, than simply, you know, allowing it there. But of course, teens' practices on these, on these spaces are going to be different than adult practices, right? For all of you who are on Twitter, the kinds of engagement you're having on Twitter looks nothing like what teenagers are doing on Twitter. So don't expect that even with the same technologies being used, that the same kinds of practices are taking place, because that's usually not true at all. So Dana, uh, you use, in the, in the talk I listened to this morning, you, you use the phrase social network sites, not social networking. And, and I don't know that I'd fully picked up on that from you, but obviously then as I sort of look back at your material, I realized, oh, this is a piece I had missed. Do you want to describe why you don't call it social networking and why you call them social network sites? Sure. Um, part of it is intentional. Part of it is, is, is an intentional response to the way that the media ended up covering this stuff. In the earliest days of it, right on the, on the feet of social software, we got a whole set of different terms for this. The media was really unclear about how to talk about it, and they talked about it as social networks, which is already kind of problematic because social networks are the you know the relationships in our in our environment. But once the fear started kicking in, everybody really started talking about it as social networking sites, and it became all about networking. Right? This is about meeting strangers. Well, that actually conveys um, an inaccurate portrait of what's actually going on. And so my move to talk about the social networks was, you know, first and foremost, a move to say, hey, this, this isn't about um, networking as the dominant uh, practice in this space. Sure, there's business networking sites that are clearly about business networking, but this is not actually about meeting new people. This is about using your social network to um, engage um, more broadly with the people, you know, using, publicly articulating your social network and using that um, to engage. It also was an interesting move because um, the assumption, this got then repurposed by marketers um, to say, oh, well, everything is a social networking site. Anything that allows anybody to talk to anybody is a social networking site. And so when you look at these rankings, all of a sudden you have you know, every online community out there um, to be called a social networking site so that they can get high rank and the potential of advertising revenue from it. And this is also problematic because it, it again, conveys the wrong impression about you know, trying to mark a specific genre um, as a meaningful uh, locus of, of analysis. And so the social network sites 
or particularly about that public articulation of your social network, right? Who, who is it that you know or are friends with or want to pay attention to or any of this? Um, and being able to publicly traverse it, right, to see what other people list as the people that they know and to be able to, you know, walk through those paths um, and then to use that to communicate. And it also tends to come with a profile and other such things. But really, more than anything, the move is to say, look, this is not about networking. This is not about meeting new people. And, um, you know, honestly, now that more and more adults are on social network sites, they get it. Um, but in the early years of all of this, I, you know, the first question on the table was always like, why do people have, you know, this many friends? Why do people want to be friends with everybody? People, might, you know, can use these to have 9,000 friends. Um, and the funny thing, of course, is that this, it's about loading this term friends and looking at actual practices. The assumption is people were, you know, having thousands and thousands. But it, interestingly, um, aside from spammers, the people who were legitimately having thousands and thousands were primarily adults. These were people who were politicians or trying to actually recruit as many people as possible. The exceptions to this were young people who were trying to collect, as, uh, and particularly young boys who were trying to collect as many cute girls as possible. Um, but the vast majority of, of users of social network sites um, tend to focus on a couple hundred, the people that they know from school, after school activity, summer camp, et cetera. Um, and, you know, or they use it for just their, their most intimate. But now that we've got a better sense of that, people realize that this is, this is about connecting with the people you know or the people that you knew. I mean, the big difference for, for adult usage is that all of a sudden you're faced with your high school friends who you're not quite sure you want to see again. <laughs> and if we shift a little, thinking about social media, from, uh, from that model, are you seeing youth who are using social media proactively to be involved in the public sphere? Meaning, is this just an enormous, I guess the, the question is going to carry a connotation here, but I sort of feel like this is an enormous opportunity for youth to play very real and tangible roles in public. Oh, it would be, and that would be great if it wasn't for every adult on the planet telling them that talking to strangers of all form is bad. Um, one of the most heartbreaking things, I mean, let me back up and say, I grew up online. Um, I'm of that first generation of kids who got online as a teenager. I got online at the age of 13. I see my coming of age um, experiences very much framed by it. Back when I got online, there was, you know, it was uh, pre, um, you know, uh, Mosaic, so pre-Netscape. Um, so my online experiences were before it was really part of the public eye. This was a mind-blowing opportunity to interact with all sorts of people, right? So, you know, I spent time talking to, you know, these kids that were coming back from the first Iraq war and understanding, you know, what the military looked like. Um, I got a big lesson in, in gender studies, uh, you know, at, at the age of, um, you know, 15 when I was starting to talking to, um, to people who were transitioning from male to female and female to male. I mean, I had so many opportunities, and then, of course, there was a political component to that. And it was before the fear. What I've seen really shift things from what I grew up with is that fear. You know, and I, I interviewed this one young woman, and she was really, she was really obsessed with um, fan culture, and she'd heard about all this fan fiction stuff, so she was, she was reading all of this fan fiction stuff online, and she was really excited by it. Um, she was a military kid, so she was um, moved from, you know, home to home every nine months to a year. It was, you know, she really had a hard time maintaining friends in terms of as a community. So she was really excited about this. So I asked her, you know, well, you know, you contribute to this. And she was like, oh, no, 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 no. I, but somebody might, might you know, re reach out and hurt me. I was like, you know, this is the kind of thing that breaks my heart. Um, when I was going um, 
uh, I was going around the country before the election. I started asking young people about the, whether they were engaged or whether they weren't. And so many of them told me that like they, they couldn't join the, the communities because, you know, it could be dangerous. They didn't know those people. Um, and, you know, that that is about fragmenting a public life. Um, and the, the, the challenge there is that, of course, we want um, young people to stay safe, and we want to help them be safe. But the key is not to talk to, to ignore all strangers. And, you know, many of you at the other end of this, um, this phone digital connection are strangers to me, right? But we're all part of a common interest, and, and there's a really interesting opportunity to have a dialogue here, which is why we're in this space. Um, but, you know, in this don't talk to strangers, uh, you know, model, I, I shouldn't be on this phone. Um, in the same way, you know, there, it's the key here is about understanding, you know, what are what is a risky stranger? How do you actually learn to interpret it? When can you actually come together in a meaningful, bonding way? Right? We teach young people that when they walk into a store, the, the store clerk is somebody you interact with who is, you know, a stranger to you, but is a perfectly legitimate stranger to interact with. The same thing happen, has to happen online, but part of that is, is adults realizing and being fluent with what kind of interactions can occur. Because the key to doing that kind of public life engagement is to be willing to interact with people who you don't know, who share your interests, and to make safe decisions. I should note the, the least safe behavior online consistently is actually adults and online dating sites. Right? Adults are actually much, much um, less careful about what they're doing and how they're interacting. Right? Don't meet up with somebody at your own personal house if it's, you're on an online dating site. Go to a public place. And that lesson needs to be ingrained in adults. That lesson also needs to be ingrained in young people. Automatically saying don't meet anybody online is actually counterproductive. There's a lot to be said about meeting people online, but the key is to do it safely and to have step-by-steps, right? You know, you can meet somebody that you met online in person, but do so at a cafe. Ha bring a friend along. Um, you know, talk to, to you know, talk to parents, talk to other people around you. Have these numbers on you. Be you know, be aware of what's going on. Be engaged with it, but don't automatically say stop. And so that's been the hardest thing about, you know, especially the political life component, right? Meetups happening all over the country around the Barack Obama campaign. Young people completely disengage with it because they think that they shouldn't meet up with somebody off offline uh, that they met online, right? That's frustrating. Okay, so it's just gotten very fun in the chat, Dana. Um, it, 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 uh, <laughs> I'm going to uh, give a little synopsis and we'll drill down. So well, thank you everybody for, for having a, a fun conversation here. I, I led a panel discussion at a conference uh, this summer, and somebody asked me how I had met each of the panelists um, who've all become friends. And I had met all of them online. And I often hear people saying you can't have a real friendship from someone online, or you need to you know, actually be with people physically. And I'm intrigued by that because I think of all of the great stories of letter writing that took place you know, before the automobile, where people got to know each other through writing. And I find that a lot of my dearest friends are people I did meet online. And there's, a, there's an online component, and there's actually been enjoying you know, meeting them physically. So what we've got here is a, is a running dialogue about different feelings about that. So uh, why don't you respond, and then let's look at the chat for specific questions for Dana. I guess, do you sure. have a response to that? Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've met so many people online myself as well, you know, I mean, especially around communities of interest, right? You're on a mailing list of other people who are interested in the same thing you do. You all go to a conference and you meet up. That's wonderful, <laughs> right? And so part of it is, is, is conveying that same message to young people, that there are really 
productive and wonderful ways of meeting people online and taking it to an offline engagement that makes sense. Um, but it doesn't, it, it's, you know, there, there's, it's not a one-size-fits-all package, right? It's not that everybody you meet online is automatically dangerous. Um, in the same way, it's not that every adult you meet is dangerous, right? And part of it is learning how to, to assess risk um, and to deal with your own um, at-risk status. I'm loving this chat. Dana, what about the advice or the work to help students create an online profile that will help them accomplish things they want to in life? Like instead of allowing Facebook or MySpace to be the default view of themselves, encouraging them to create sort of personal profile or interest sites that, that are things that they're passionate about. The key, the key to all of this is the context, right? So what is the context in which they are operating and what makes sense? Right? Usually that kind of question is about like, you know, again, trying to make a public profile for the public to look at your interests. And that's not actually what young people are doing online. It goes back to this larger story about, about no strangers. Um, and, you know, it's really funny to watch young people's profiles and like what they put up on there. And, you know, I interview them a lot about the different material there. And, you know, why put up your interests? Your friends know what your interests are. Why put up your real age? Your friends know what your real age is. Um, mind you, you know, young, huge numbers, and I'm still trying to get quantitative uh, stats on this, huge numbers of kids put up inaccurate uh, year, their birth year. They very rarely put up an inaccurate birth date. Adults read this as like kids trying to be deceptive. Well, guess what? Law enforcement has been coming into schools around the country telling young people to, to be safe online. They can't put um, identifying information. So guess what? <laughs> they put up that they're 96 years old um, and other such things. And so, you know, I can't ask them to create these profiles for a public that they don't understand. They're going to create it for their, their community. And one of the challenges is what happens when the, their community dis, is, is disconnected or um, unaligned with uh, broader public groups. Um, one of the most uh, intriguing conversations that I had was with um, uh, an Ivy League college admissions officer. And we were talking about um, a young applicant from South Central in LA who had applied and was written, he had written an essay about how he wanted to leave his um, gang-ridden community um, to you know, go to the school. And the, the admissions officer had gone to um, uh, his MySpace profile and found tons of gang symbols and signals all over the, the profile and was wondering why on earth he would lie. <laughs> and I was like, he's not lying. He wants to escape that. It's that every day he has to walk into that school and survive. And what that means, what survival means in that school is to stay in context. And to stay in context means he's got to look cool to the social group there. And so when we see these profiles, what we're seeing is the local structure of what is cool. And this again goes back to visibility. Some of this is absolutely wonderful, right? Some of it is, is high achieving academic and super passionate about a ton of different things. Some of it is not. Um, of course, our, uh, as adults, if, you, if you're not randomly sampling profiles, you probably have a really skewed uh, portrait, portrait of what goes on. Um, the the you know, stat that I like to joke around with is you know, I analyzed 10,000 young people's MySpace profiles. And um, the references of, of to God and Jesus and Bible quotes um, far, far, far outnumbered the um, scantily clad pictures available on those profiles, right? But we're convinced that MySpace is filled with scantily clad um, pictures of young people, when that's not actually true. So we get these mixed images, 
But young people are learning to construct an image of themselves. They're, they're presenting themselves to something. But they have to present themselves to somebody. They have to have an imagined audience. They have to have some idea of who, who that context is. And that imagined audience almost always is their friends and the people around them. And it's really hard to ask them to, to imagine an audience much more public than that when they're not part of that public to begin with. So maybe I meant something slightly different than that and, and see if it resonates with you. And I'm thinking of the high school student who begins to discover that they really care about um, applying theater principles to helping in low-income social circumstances, or they care about autistic kids. Um, you know, is there a way for us to help transition them from their, the way they're participating online to seeing an opportunity to actually become a part of something significant in our society and to be contributors? by virtue of building around those passions, and that that's a, you know, again, a very positive way to interact with the larger public? I'm sure. I mean, those outstanding kids are amazing. But, you know, one thing to keep in mind, those outstanding kids are outstanding and are already visible in a whole variety of ways in their schools and other such places. You know, when you look at um, how college admissions officers do their recruiting, they call up all of these schools and they say, you know, where are the kids who are helping, you know, kids with autism in their communities, right? Like, where are these 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 high achievers, these super involved kids? Um, can they take that and be more applied? Of course, right? Tracking tracking those kids is a wonderful opportunity to find it, right? And I can give you examples of just sort of super, you know, super involved kids that have done really amazing things uh, long before they'd left high school, um, but. It's not the norm, and it's not it's not the norm, and this is where we get the same dynamics offline that we get online, right? Those kids who are putting up these, these digital engagements and doing all this community service online, they are almost always involved offline as well, right? In the various clubs that get them into the um, into, into you know to further resume if for nothing else. Um, it's, you know, the, the bigger challenge is how do you get the kids who are not engaged online or offline um, to find a way of actually being involved in the community, um, to take something that's really personal to them, right? They have a kid sibling with autism and, they, and you know, they're, they're dealing with it at home and they're frustrated and they're, they're confused and they don't know what to do. Help connect them to communities that are really doing work around this so that not only they can, they can they help somebody, but they can also um, help themselves figure out what's going on at home. Right? There's an amazing point of making those connections. And again, this comes back to the visibility of it. But one of the, one of the things I, I sort of push back at is be very careful of just helping the kids who are super already involved and high-powered and so engaged. Because those kids, you know, this is, this is you know, where the Internet does um, often benefit the most, the, the kids that have the most. Um, and we, we want to, you know, at least in my perspective, you know, we want to make or um, bring in a, a whole variety of underrepresented populations, people who aren't part of that story already, um, to tap into their own life story, to tap into the things that we can actually draw out passions from them. But those passions aren't going to be visible online if they're not visible offline. So lots of fun thoughts here. Do you want to talk a little bit about that participatory divide and what kinds of things we should be thinking about doing to help? Sure. Um, there's, there's this, this long-standing belief that if we build it, they will come. And you know, this is the field of dreams that is best. And amidst this is this, this you know, story of access, which has been our long-standing digital divide 
conversation, right? If we if we get rid of barriers to access, we will have no problems in terms of barriers to participation. Well, you know, 15 years into the story, what are we seeing? We are seeing a huge participatory gap. Um, this is Henry Jenkins' terms, who you'll get to hear from you know, in a couple of weeks. And um, the, what that means is that depending on how you're involved, right, both in terms of where you have access, right, if you have access at home versus only if you only have access at school, but also what the values of the community around you are, right, if your parents understand the Internet and are helping you explore new things and really engage there, versus if your parents aren't literate and have no understanding of the technology, right, the entire environment in which you are in shapes your engagement online, right? The people, your friends around you, the adults around you, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we see is this ever-increasing participatory gap, right? The gap between the, um, those who uh, live in very privileged communities, right, with parents who are paying attention to them and, and lots of resources and lots of and resources not just being money but also time and attention and support and all of this are, are finding that the Internet just, you know, can excel them in all sorts of learning potentials. Those whose access, you know, is, is limited to school, whose parents don't have an understanding of it, whose teachers don't know how to make sense of it, you know, whose, you know, systems are, you know, outdated and, you know, um, and, you know, have no basic media literacy, they're not thriving with these environments, right? One of the places in which I see this um, playing out, which is really interesting, is um, looking at similar uh, socioeconomic positions of kids in cities, in urban environments, urban poor, and kids in rural poor environments. What's really fascinating to me is they have about the same level of basic access, right? It's usually about the school as being the primary place in which they have access, right? Well, and, and often they both have complete filters, right? Those schools um, have gotten their computers through some large grant. That grant has required filtering to be a part of it. Well, what I find really interesting is, is that the teens in the um, public schools in uh, urban environments all know proxies, right? Proxies are a way of circumventing um, any, any barrier uh, to access uh, put up by filters. None of the kids in um, uh, communities that are, that are much more um, rural are even aware of what a proxy is. That basic little knowledge gap, which, you know, when you talk to teens from urban environments, they found out about it through their cousins, they found out about it through other people, it circulates in the schools. All of a sudden you have these kids in urban environments getting on to MySpace, getting on to Wikipedia, finding all of these sites in which they can make sense of things, uh, both for personal passions and sort of um, more uh, sort of informal learning going on. And they're, you know, excelling at this in a way in which the, the rural kids that are just as blocked from these systems are not. Um, and part of, I should, I should note that one of these, you know, the big stories of all of this is that there's an assumption around the filtering mechanisms. That the only legitimate um, use of the Internet is for, you know, basically um, formalized understandings of what's learning, right, which include uh, uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic, basically. And not aware of the absolute informal learnings that go on, trying to understand the social worlds that, that um, are around you. And learning about the social is absolutely critical, right? The way that we learn to collaborate is by interacting with other people. The way that we learn to participate in larger communities is about interacting with other people. Well, where does this play out even worse? You know, the, these kids get to go to college, right? They, you know, there's the really um, excellent kids from the from these two environments. They get to they get invited to the state school or whatever. Guess what? The kids from the inner 
the inner city who um, figured out a proxy to figure out how to be a part of some of these environments that they that they uh, got access to, you know, illegitimately, um, can integrate much more comfortably into the collegiate environment than the kids who were written out of it because of their lack of knowledge at that level. So you have all of these differentials that play out at all sorts of different levels. Um, and it also divides around, you know, what you see and what you experience and what you think is normal, um, both online and offline. And I think one of the things to keep in the back of your mind is that, you know, as you see um, you know, engagement online, it's important to remember that this often mirrors and magnifies uh, all sorts of offline behavior. And it mirrors and magnifies all sorts of offline social divides and social structures. Um, it doesn't, it's, it, this is not the magical fix at all. And so what we're seeing in terms of the participation gap is something that we've been seeing for a long time, you know, in schools across the country. I mean, look at what's going on between the divides in private schools and public schools in California since Prop, you know, Prop 13. You know, it's pretty devastating to see that happen. Um, the same things are playing out online, right? This is about the kids that, you know, get the crayons and get to be creative and the kids who have no books in their schools. Um, the same gets mirrored online. Okay, we're about 12 minutes away from finishing. Uh, Dana has a tight schedule today, so we are going to finish on time. Uh, if you have a question you'd like to ask that hasn't come up in the chat, please feel, to, feel free to raise your hand, the hand icon with the green up arrow, and we'll give you the microphone. Uh, Teresa, have you caught any in the chat that we didn't get uh, to by talking to Dana? I think a lot of it was covered as we went along, but I think everybody was just totally involved in listening to Dana. So, <laughs> I mean, I think um, one of the points was about uh, kids don't want to be friends with parents, and how do you um, how do you really go forward with getting into their space and being their friend? I think you kind of covered that. Um, another one was how do educators get the message? Although one thing one thing okay. I keep in mind. Sure. I said just one thing to keep in mind for that is that like even if, if you can't be friends with a particular kid, be friends with part, kids that are part of the community. There's often very good reasons to not be that your kids don't your, themselves don't want to be interactive with you in this space. I think it's kind of that ambient awareness. Trusted adults. Are key. Pardon? Yeah, tr and trusted adults are absolutely key. Trust you know help your help your children find trusted adults right whether it's an aunt or an uncle or somebody in the community that's having a trusted adult that they can turn to that's not a parent is really important. That's interesting because that's my role actually as an aunt and also with my cousins. I mean, I check their their kids' Facebook pages and they'll say things and I watch it and you know I interact if I need to. But yeah, it's like you said. I think most people are not interactive with these kids in their spaces and they don't understand how they use them. So. Um, I think another uh, another question was how do educators get the message of social sites as educational? And I, I mean I think that's exactly what Steve focuses on, and that's a very broad question. But maybe. yeah, yeah, I mean it's, it's it's brutal. I mean you know how do we dismang uh, uh, you know disembowel basically um, uh, no child left behind, um, and what it means is the current ideas of standards education. I mean, media literacy, even before we get to the social sites, right, getting to media literacy, getting to a conversation about this stuff is really critical. But part of it is, is that, you know, I invite teachers to be more and more fluent, understand these spaces, and to think about learning far beyond just what is in their classroom. And we used to have this, right? Like, there's a lot of learning that happened outside of the classroom that we used to take as being something that was really, really important. But somehow along the way, we've lost a lot of that. So, Jenna, you raised your your hand, I'm going to give you the mic. 
feel free to go ahead and turn your mic on now by clicking on the microphone icon on the lower left of your screen. If you wanted to ask a question out loud. And hey, can you there you go. Me? Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, this has been a really great conversation and we've you've talked some, Dana, about uh, civic engagement and, and thinking about how to get kids in, engaged politically. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on you know, we, we see a lot of kids doing a lot of things that we wouldn't typically think of as civic engagement, rallying behind shows or, or trying to make MySpace their space versus um, an ad, uh, an advertising space. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how seeing those sorts of things happen online, how that can kind of reshape how we think about what civic engagement means today. I think, I think you're totally right, and I think that you know part of it is this thing about what public are you a part of, right? And so when when young people actually engage on MySpace and they grab that and they say, "This is mine, I'm going to take hold of it," they're learning the lessons of, of ownership of a public space and 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 demanding their rights and and really sort of trying to make um, some sort of meaningful change. You know, it is it is an activist element, um, and part of it is to embrace that and to encourage it and to think about it much broad much broader. Of course, the places that they're going to be most active are the places in which they feel like they've got, you know, um, uh, a foot in the in the race, right? Like they want to be part of it. And it was really interesting to me to watch um, years ago. Uh, now uh, there was there were protests around um, the um, congressional uh, bill HR 4437, which was an immigration bill. And there were all sorts of adult protests organized primarily by ethnic media, um, particularly in California. And um, young people felt as though they weren't part of that story. So this conversation started brewing among um, young kids, uh, primarily kids who were American, whose parents were not, whose parents were illegal immigrants, um, about you know how, what their position is. And what it motivated is that they decided to do a walkout. And they actually tr took something that was you know an online conversation and transformed it into something that was um, an offline activity. Um, and they staged a walkout. And they got you know tens of thousands of kids to walk out on a Monday morning at 8:30. Now, of course, like any protest, you know there's people that are along for the ride as well as people that actually want to say something about it. Um, the response, of course, by both the media and by Mayor um, Villaraigosa in LA was to say, um, you know, go back to school. You, this is not this is not political activity. This is you're supposed to be in school. And so part of it is also this question of which spaces are in which in which environments are they allowed to have a voice. Um, where do they feel as though they have a sense of ownership, and where do they feel as though they can go beyond it? That said, you know, if it, if 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 you know, if as an activist, the key to getting um, kids to understand what it means to be an activist is to make them an activist about the online spaces. Go for it. That's that is an amazing lesson to learn, right? And a lot of young people don't learn how to be an activist um, until much older, and you know, if ever. Um, and how to really sort of make um, change and to be you know, civically engaged. And so I, I do fully support what your comments are. I think it's really critical to think about civic engagement online, civic engagement in the spaces that you're in, whatever those spaces are. And in some way, I'd also say there's something to be said about civic engagement in the home, right? What does it mean not just to have chores and responsibilities, but to have rights and ways of actually making a statement and seeking change in the house? And how do we engender that? So part of it is take the spaces that they're already in and help engender those processes online and offline um, so they feel as though they've got agency and a voice. Dana, Steve from Castellaria School says, one of the policy issues many schools are struggling with has to do with the social network guidelines for their employees. Do you have any comments on that? 
yeah, you know, it's it's painful to watch that most, you know, usually the, I don't know what the guidelines in his school are, but usually the guidelines are just don't do it. Um, get offline, you know, do everything that makes yourself private, don't engage with young people. And I think that there's actually a lot to be said for engaging with young people in a much more meaningful way. Of course, the first part of this is to stop banning it inside school so the teachers can get on during school hours. But I think that there are ways in which you can do that safely. And one of the ways that I would encourage it is similar to the kinds of structures that you see in schools already, right? Teachers at this point are often encouraged to meet with students with their, with the door open. And when the door isn't open, if they need to have more private conversations, often it involves notifying somebody and saying, like, I need to have a private conversation with this person. They're having real difficulties. I'm going to close the door, but here's what's going on. I think a similar model can actually be played out online, where part of it is, is you know, as a, as a teacher to be like, okay, I'm going to engage with my students in this space, but I want to make certain and very clear that this is, this is safe and logical at every level. And so it's about you know, inviting other teachers to be a part of that, that network or inviting, you know, maybe it's the principal to check in, but make it very clear. And also check back in with the school itself and say, look, you know, I've been spending time talking to, you know, uh, Bobby about, you know, his various challenges in school, and I've noticed these things, but I want you to be aware that this conversation is occurring. Right? And that kind of transparency about interactions can do a lot to alleviate it, and is a much better solution than just don't interact. Um, but it's about really mapping out. Also, you know, there is something to be said about keeping, separating truly personal lives and, um, and teacher lives. And one of the things I think that teachers really need to get that in their head, that it's the same kind of norms that they would have in the classroom or the norms they have to interact with on social network sites when they're interacting with their students. And often that will mean a segmentation of profiles, right? That you don't have the same profile to joke around with your high school mates, um, to talk about partying this weekend, um, as you do uh, when you're interacting with your students. And that's, and really, you know, encouraging your friends to be respectful of this and making a profile that is much more private for your personal life. In some ways, you're better off being extremely public in your professional life as a teacher and extremely private um, in your personal life. Um, but that said, it doesn't mean that you won't get into trouble, and that's why the conversation has to keep on going. Um, I ran into a situation at a private school where um, a teacher uh, had, uh, created a profile, and this is, this is Friendster, this is back in the day. Teacher had created a profile, um, and one of the pictures was of um, him wearing a Catholic schoolgirl uniform. And uh, unfortunately, the parents of um, kids in that school read that as proof that he was a pedophile, um, and he was fired. Um, and it was really tricky because, of course, you know, anybody who would have looked at that for five seconds would have been like, Halloween costume, right? Look at what everybody else in the room was wearing. <laughs> um, but it's really, really tricky to deal with those balances. So one of the big lessons I think that teachers need to be aware of is that, like, they are searchable, and they are searchable by people who hold power over them, and that includes the principal, and that includes the, um, the, the parents of the, their students, and the key is to create a presence online that you're very happy with being searchable. And that public presence is where you actually interact with young people. Um, and the private presence is where, you know what, you, you're welcome to date, you know, in your off time. You're welcome to, you know, joke around with your friends. But really keep it away from, from kids who are looking at, trying to find information about you. You know, can I say something, Chief? Yeah, you can, but I okay. promised Dana we would finish oh. on time, so it's very quick. Okay, I think just to, to add to your point, I think um, it's important, too, to, that people are, kids are understanding your digital footprint. So it's whatever you're putting online, it's, everyone's going to see it, and it's going to be there forever. So. Hey. I think, you know, it's interesting because uh, 
adults don't understand. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's twofold. And what we see over and over is how adults don't do. One of the, the other things I'd say on, on this topic is that, like, yes, the things you've written about are going to be forever there. Um, you can find all sorts of things that I wrote on Usenet back in the day if you really want to go looking. But part of it is, is creating also a living record and to see change and to, to notice that, right? I wrote things on my blog in 1997 that I no longer believe. Um, I don't delete them. They're there. And I'm willing to have a conversation about them at any point with anybody who wants to talk about it. And part of it is, is building this record where you keep creating your presence and you show that you're growing up. Because I think that there's no way to um, write for all people across all space and all time, and there's no way to even be truthful to yourself 30 years from now. The way you think about things does change. This is why we joke about, you know, little time capsules and putting something in and going away. So I think that the same model has to go. It's, it's not that you're going to ever be able to imagine the future. It's the key is to be honest with yourself and to, think, to be conscious of who you want to read this and to really notice when you mess up and to keep going. Put one foot forward and, and part of it is, is that you also blur out your, your public record, you know. I've got so much out there that if you've read all of it, um, that would make you a stalker. Uh, and I really don't think that any of you have gotten that far. There's a ton of material on this. Some of it is very embarrassing, but a part of it is to continue to evolve with your presence. Um, and that's where I encourage people, you know, young people and adults, to just continuing, continue evolving your presence. Put up stuff that you're really proud of and just keep going. Learn these lessons and then help young people learn them as well. Dan, that's a great place to finish. Sure loved having you on. I'm clapping for you. Please clap for Dana and let her know how much you appreciate it coming in the middle of the day, middle of the week, 60 people are watching, uh, you know, uh, people taking time out and it says a lot about you, Dana. So uh, thanks to you for coming today. Thanks to Learn Central and Illuminate for providing this environment. Please do uh, consider coming to some of our future events. Dana, uh, sure want to make sure that you can get off on time, but if you have any last words, this would be the moment. <laughs> no, but thank you so much for having me. Okay. We're going to let you go. Thanks again, Dana. Thanks, everybody, for coming. We'll, let the, we'll keep the room open for a few more minutes, uh, and then we've got to close it out so that the recording can process. But feel free to, to keep uh, chatting for a couple of minutes, and I'll stay on as well. Thanks, Teresa. Thanks, Dana. Have a great day. Take care. Thanks, guys. For those of you who are leaving the session, there is a survey that pulls up once you leave. Please do fill it out and let us know how you think it went today and give us ideas for uh, sessions in the future. Thank you. Then I'm turning off the teleconference bridge and feel free just to close the program so that you're logged out.
Okay, so I'm going to kick everybody out of the pool so the recording can process. I'm going to turn the recording off.